0: أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم على محمد وآله محمد we continue our journey into the life of the messenger of God the holy prophet Muhammad صلى الله عليه وآله And this week, we celebrated his joyful birth, this amazing occasion and event that every single Muslim is proud of. And we thank the Almighty God for blessing us with such an amazing messenger. And we ask Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala to help us to do justice to this messenger. You have a question, brother? Okay, inshallah. thank you. Now we've reached a very pivotal point in the life of the Prophet, a turning point and that is revelation, when he received revelation. There are many events that happened before that, but really the most challenging event, the most difficult stage in the Prophet's life came after Revelation because now he was instructed by God to carry the heaviest message God has ever given to humanity, the final religion of God, that in itself is a very heavy ponderous message, for 40 years the Messenger of God Was waiting for this day, sometimes he would look at the people, at their ignorance, at their immorality and he would ask God, when will it be the time that you bless me by delivering the message of Islam to these people, by giving them morality, by teaching them the path of guidance. Most historical accounts indicate that the messenger of God was 40 years old when God sent the revelation to him, so this happened during the 40th year after the event of the elephant, remember those early Arabs they did not have a set calendar, they would go by major events, So when you see the calendar during the time of the Prophet in Mecca, it would go by the year of the elephant, five years after the year of the elephant, ten years after the year of the elephant, so-and-so person was born on the 15th year after the elephant, the year of the elephant. So historical accounts indicate that the revelation came down on the Prophet 40 years after the year of the elephant and he was born during the year of the elephant which makes the messenger of God 40 years old when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent him as a messenger with the Holy Quran. Now in the Gregorian calendar, the messenger of God was born in 570 AD, so if we add 40 years to that, how old will he become? what year 6 it's not really 610 it's 609 because you have a difference between the solar calendar and the lunar calendar every 33 years the lunar calendar adds one year more than the solar calendar so if the prophet was 40 years old in the lunar calendar how old was he was in how old was he in the solar calendar 39 years old So in our calendar, the Gregorian Western calendar right, the Messenger of God was around 39 years old, not exactly 40, in the lunar Islamic Arabic calendar, yes he was 40 years old, so he was born 570, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the revelation year 609 around 610, 40 years later. So most of the historical accounts that we have indicate that, Now what is the exact date of the Ba'tha? In Arabic, the Ba'tha refers to the day on which the Messenger of God received Revelation. Literally, linguistically Ba'tha means when you've sent someone on a mission for something. When did God send the Prophet with Revelation? That's what we called the Bi'tha, we also call it the Mab'ath, that day we call it the Mab'ath, you've heard of it in our Islamic calendar, Mab'ath yes, Mab'ath is the day in which the Prophet received revelation, what day was that? the sources of Ahlul Bayt indicate that occurred on the 27th day of Rajab, Rajab is what month in the Islamic calendar? it's the seventh month, equivalent to our July right, so the messenger of God, he received revelation on the 27th day of the month of Rajab and therefore it's one of our Eids, it's a holy day, we are required to observe it, it's highly recommended to fast the day of Mab'ath on the 27th of Rajab and it's highly recommended to celebrate that day and to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we have many traditions from the Ahlul Bayt that confirm he was sent on the 27th day of Rajab. There are some Sunni narrations as well, for example, in the Seerah Halabiyyah, which is a Sunni source of biography of the Prophet, he mentions a hadith from Abu Hurairah, which confirms that the Messenger of God received revelation on the 27th day of Rajab. But not all Sunni sources agree, while the Shia sources maintain that it was the 27th of Rajab, many Sunni sources say he received revelation in the month of Ramadan, so about two months later. So for example, At-Tabari in his book, Tariq At-Tabari, Ibn Hisham in his Seerah, they maintain that he received revelation in the month of Ramadan, so we've got some differences over here exactly we'll, we'll mention that, why did they say it was the month of Ramadan and not Rajab? their objection to us the followers of Ahlul Bayt is that the Quran is very clear that God revealed the Quran when? in the month of Ramadan, so if God revealed the Quran in the month of Ramadan then it must have been the month of Ramadan when he received those first verses because God says I sent down the Quran in the month of Ramadan so that's their argument what is our response to that yes it's true that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says very clearly that the month of Ramadan is the month in which the holy quran was revealed Surah al-qadr what does it say we have sent down the Holy Quran, we have revealed the Quran in Laylatul Qadr and we all know Laylatul Qadr is in which month? The month of Ramadan, we don't dispute that, the Quran does confirm that, so how is it that the Prophet then was sent in Rajab on the 27th day when he received the first revelation, the first verses from the Quran? To understand that we have to know that we have two types of revelation of the Quran, we have the gradual revelation and we have the instant revelation, Tanzeel and Inzal as some has called it. What does that mean? See the Holy Quran came in stages, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala before he revealed this Holy Quran in this world, the Quran has actually previous stages, so, the first stage that the Holy Quran went through, the words of God, is in the Bayt al Ma'mur. The Bayt al Ma'mur is basically a holy place in the heavens, in the fourth heaven, which is directly above the Kaaba. There is a pillar that connects the Kaaba to the Bayt al Ma'mur. So, one end is the Kaaba on this physical earth, the other end is the Bayt al-Ma'mur. So the Bayt al-Ma'mur is a very very holy place in the heavens, in the fourth heaven, fourth heaven and you know the angels of God have many tasks in Bayt al-Ma'mur, it's a very holy place. The Qur'an was first revealed to the Bayt al-Ma'mur from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, He revealed it first to the Beit al Ma'mur. So the actual Quran, the actual Quran was revealed by God first to that stage. So what about it? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's the tradition or no. But I've heard that the Quran came from the love to Beit al Ma'mur from from the Tablet. There are some details as to how it ended up in Beit al Ma'mur. We have the Looh al Ma'fuf. Allah keeps the Holy Quran preserved in a tablet but basically the first primary stage when God created the Quran, the first stage he transferred the Holy Quran to was what? the Bayt al-Ma'mur. Now you could be wondering why did the Quran go through these stages? One primary reason is that the Word of God is so powerful and heavy it needs to be lowered and lowered down to the level of the earth so we can actually understand it, because the reality of the word of God is something beyond our capacity, these are the words of God not just anyone, they have a reality behind them. So that's the first stage, the Quran was revealed to the Bayt Al-Ma'mur, after the Bayt Al-Ma'mur, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the Quran in preparation for the people of the earth. Allah revealed the Quran to the level of this world. Sama'id Dunya. That's the second stage. The third stage, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the Holy Quran to the heart of the Prophet. Allah revealed the Holy Quran directly to the heart of the Prophet at once instantaneously, that happened in the Shah Ramadan, in the month of Ramadan Allah lowered the Quran to this world and he directly revealed it to the heart of the Prophet but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he revealed the meanings of the Quran and the words to the heart of the Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him don't rush reading the Quran before we tell you and instruct you that's your instant tanzil revelation and then you have the gradual, throughout a period of 23 years Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the Quran in stages, so some verses would come, some chapters would come based on the events that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saw fit, so the Prophet received the first verses in the month of Rajab, he heard them from the angel then two months later in the month of Ramadan, Allah revealed the whole Quran, the entire Quran, to the heart of the Prophet, so we accept all these verses that say Allah wa ta'ala revealed the Quran in the month of Ramadan, but that was the instantaneous revelation, as for the gradual revelation, verse after verse coming down, it started when? On the 27th day of Rajab, that was the day on which the Prophet received the first verses of the Qur'an, yes brother? So, so I have a question about the stages, so if they were revealed verses and chapters based on the events that happened, now the book how it is now, this is not in the events that they happened, so is this the way we're meant to read <coughs> it from the start or meant to read it as it was? Revealed? So that is correct, the sequence of the Qur'an that we see right now, it's not based on the k- sequence in which it was revealed, when the Qur'an was put into book form and compiled uh, there were some changes uh, to the sequence, scholars have different opinions as to who made those changes, we believe the Prophet made those changes in his lifetime, he instructed Imam Ali and uh, the companions to keep the sequence the way it is, so this was by the instruction of God, so yes, the Quran is not according to when chronologically, chronologically when it was revealed, but that's the sequence that Allah subhanahu wa taala wanted to be put in book form. Other schools of thought, the Sunnis have another opinion, they believe Uthman is the one who put this in the sequence, but that's not correct, what Uthman did, he unified the versions, there were several versions of the Quran because each tribe and city sometimes would read some verse, verses differently, and sometimes some changes happened to the Qur'an, they added, deleted some words, so Uthman, he unified the copies, that copy that was in Medina, he made it the standard copy and he burned all the other copies but in the time of the Prophet, Allah had actually instructed the Prophet exactly to place the verse where and in what sequence and the Imams of Ahlul Bayt they sanctioned the sequence and they accepted it, so there's a lot of discussion on that, in any case, the revelation started on the 27th day of Rajab. Where did that happen? In the cave of Hira, it's a cave, for those of you who have gone to the Hajj or Umrah, you may have seen it, one of the most beautiful experiences is to climb and hike to go to that cave, Jabal An-Nur, it's a beautiful experience, from that cave you can directly see the Kaaba, it's about three miles away from Mecca. Now, the Prophet, he used to regularly go to Cave Hara, meditate and pray to Allah. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. Before the Prophet, Abdul Muttalib, his grandfather, would actually worship God in Cave Hara. So it was a holy place. We had people like Abdul Muttalib, the Prophet, they would worship God in Cave Hara before he received the revelation. So he was in the cave on the 27th day of Rajab at age 40 when for the first time Angel Jibrail visibly appeared to him and he saw the actual figure of Jibrail. before that he would hear the voice of the angels according to some hadiths, they would communicate to him, he had some angels protecting him some angels instructing him to do good, however it seems from some traditions that the first time that he actually saw the figure of Jibrail alayhi salam was in that cave, when he was in the cave he saw the angel. No this is 27th day of Rajab, on that day he received the first verses of the Qur'an. What was that first verse which he, was, which he received in the cave? Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim In the name of Allah, the compassionate, the merciful, that's the first verse. Then, اِقْرَأْ بِاسْمِ رَبِّكَ الَّذِي خَلَقْ Read in the name of your Lord who has created. According to Ahlul Bayt, these were the first verses that he received from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. On the 27th day of Rajab in Ghar Hira, some have argued that no, this is not the first verse that he received, the first chapter that he received was Surah Al-Fatiha, the opening chapter, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman Ar-Raheem and their argument is that immediately after the Bi'tha, the Prophet sallallahu was praying, the next day, the following day he was seen praying along with Khadija and Imam Ali and obviously any salah needs Fatiha, right? to be valid, so he must have received Surat al-Fatiha when they saw him praying immediately after this event, that's their argument but that's not the case, why? First of all maybe he received Surat al-Fatiha the next day in the morning before he started praying, number two, initially Surat al-Fatiha was not mandatory to read in your Salah, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made Surat al-Fatiha part of Salah, so the Prophet could have prayed without surah al-Fatiha, it was not wajib to pray with Fatiha then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made Fatiha an integral part of salah, so that does not negate this first opinion, yes brother? When so when did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made Surat al-Fatiha mandatory? Some historical accounts say after surah al-Muddathir Surat al-Fatiha was revealed so we're talking about two or three years after this event when the Prophet was around 43 years old, most sources that we have they state Surah al Fatiha was revealed three years after the Prophethood of the Prophet, when he was 43 years old. Yes. Yeah the first few verses not the entire Surah, Five verses of Surat al-Alaq were revealed. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continued them later. We don't believe the tradition about Ma'an al We're gonna examine that in detail now. So that's the version of Ahlul Bayt. On the 27th day, he received revelation, these few verses. He was very happy, very excited about this mission. Yes, it was a heavy mission, but the Prophet embraced it wholeheartedly, with so much tranquility and peace, he carried the message, he went and he informed uh, his wife and Imam Ali, peace be upon them, and he gave them the good news that Allah has chosen this day to start the Quran and to start my mission. So there are some differences as to whether Imam Ali was with him in the cave or not, we do have hadiths from Imam Ali, in which he says, I was there when he received the revelation. I did not see, Imam Ali says, I didn't see the angel but I heard the angel speak to him. The Sunnis don't accept this, they reject that but we believe that he was with the Prophet in the cave and remember we examined before that in the Prophet he would take Imam Ali with him everywhere and he would regularly take him to cave Hara. So the Prophet, the first person he informed about this was obviously Khadija because Imam Ali was already with him because their argument is well he never informed Imam Ali so he's not the first person to be a Muslim, it was Khadija or some others that will examine they've claimed, our answer to that is Imam Ali during those days he was actually living in the Prophet's house, he would go everywhere with the Prophet and he was with the Messenger of God, he did not see the angel, but he heard the angel, so all the Shia agree to all not all the Shia, I don't have an exact percentage but, but the Imam himself in hadith says that, maybe some Shi'a it's not clear to them that Imam Ali alayhi salam is referring to this first incident, maybe he's speaking in general because remember the Prophet would regularly receive revelation so maybe Imam Ali is referring to that in general that whenever the Prophet would he- receive revelation I would hear the voice of the angel, but I would not see the angel. In any case, this is not something accepted by all Shia. However, we do have some indications that he was with him in the cave. So the prophet goes so happy. Yes, brother. Uh, did Prophet Muhammad know he was a prophet before? Him? That's what we're going to examine right now. So the Shia version of the story is that he was very happy with so much tuma'nina, tranquility and peace. He went and he informed Khadija and she was so happy to hear that. Let's now go to the other versions. When you examine some of these other versions brothers and sisters, you see how oppressed the Prophet is and until today Muslims continue oppressing him. You know we talk about Islamophobia and anti-Prophet claims, it starts here. It started earlier, we examined how Jibra'il supposedly opened the chest of the Prophet and he did that surgery on him when he was little, right? But it doesn't stop here, it seems Jibra'il according to these schools of thought has a habit of uh, really harassing the Prophet and scaring him and almost killing him. Let's see these other versions. So what is the version of Bukhari and Muslim? What do they say about Revelation? Bukhari and Muslim, they narrate from az zuhari from Urwa ibn Zubair, from Aisha. She says that this is how revelation started. The angel came to the prophet. He was in Ghar Hira. The angel tells the prophet, "Iqra, read." What does the prophet reply? "Ma ana biqara. I'm not a reader. I can't read." Apparently, Jibra'il does not like that answer, what does he do? Bukhari says this right? فَأَخَذَنِي the Prophet says He took me, he squeezed me, he suffocated me to the point where I almost died, it was so heavy on me, then he let me go. Bukhari says this, first surgery failed as the brother says, he told him a second time, read, the Prophet says I can't read, so he took him the second time and he suffocated him and he squeezed him for the second time, then the third time he told him read and the Prophet is telling him I can't read, then the third time, he tells him "Jibrail, iqra' bismi rabbika allathee khalaq read in the name of your Lord who has created. So after he tells him that the Prophet is scared, he's shaking, he's traumatized, he runs to his wife Khadija, in fact فعاده. فعاده. Bukhari says his heart is trembling, shaking, فَدَخَلَ عَلَىٰ He went, he met his wife Khadija and he said, cover me, cover me, he was shaking until he calmed down, then he told Khadija about what happened, then he told her, لَقَدْ I was afraid, I was dying, I was afraid for my life. Khadija, she's so concerned about the Prophet, She tells him kalla wallah, no messenger of God, I swear by God, I don't think God is torturing you because you're such a good man, you help out the poor, you do good things, you enjoy, you keep ties with your family, you know there's no reason why God would want to try to kill you, so this is not what it seems to be but since you don't know what in the world is going on, and I don't know what's going on, let's let me go ask my cousin Waraka ibn Nawfal, he knows a lot about the Bible, maybe he knows exactly what's happened, so she takes him to Waraka ibn Nawfal and she tells Waraka, he was a sage, a wise man, oh Waraka, let Muhammad describe to you what he saw, maybe you can shed some light on what this poor guy is going through, So he tells him exactly what he saw and what happened and the conversation that occurred between him and Jibrail. Waraka tells him, Oh Muhammad, if that's what you described as being true, if that's what happened to you, then let me tell you something, that creature that was speaking to you, that is one of the greatest angels of God and you, and that's the same angel who spoke to Musa alayhi salam who spoke to Isa alayhi salam and you are a prophet, you have a mission, O Muhammad, and your people will try to drive you out of your city, but God will give you victory and the Prophet got even more scared and he told him, oh they're going to try to exile me from my city, he says yes and I wish I would be there, I won't have a long life to support you, but if I were there, I would defend you and I would support you, but I will not make it and shortly after Waraka dies. So So did Waraka become Muslim or not, according to these reports that we have, he did not become Muslim, we don't have an authentic report that he became Muslim, even though they claim that the Prophet said Waraka is in heaven waiting for me, but he heard about the Prophet, he heard about this exchange, supposedly he had to confirm to the Prophet that this is the angel, yet he didn't accept his message so that tells you something is wrong. So this is the version of Bukhari. We have several observations over here, first of all, why would Jibreel squeeze him like that, why? You don't do that to an average person, hurt him like that, let alone a messenger of God, that's wrong for an angel to come and traumatize a man like that but hey this is the same Jibrail who split his heart out right, he'll probably do other things, <laughs> Astaghfirullah, once I read you know a comment one of our scholars was making, he, he was very furious about this, he's like well when Jibrail did that and he tried to kill him, why didn't he as Bukhari say, punch him in the face like Musa did? When the angel of death came to take the life of Musa, what do you know what Bukhari says? Bukhari says Musa punched him in the face, he gave him a black eye. The angel of death went back to Allah and he says, oh God, Musa didn't let me take his soul, he punched me and you see I have a black eye and then Allah told Musa, hey why did you do that? This is Bukhari, Bukhari says this, so this scholar says, you know, why didn't the Prophet, was Musa, Musa, was he more courageous than the Prophet? Couldn't Musa do the same thing? Astaghfirullah. So why would Jibrayim do that to him? Why would you traumatize an angel like the Prophet, such a beautiful human being, the best of God's creation? Yes, brother? I just want to say, probably getting payback for the angel of death. Payback for the angel of death, good one. So that's the first you know, observation that we have here, it doesn't add up, you know, there's no reason why Jibrail would do that. Secondly, when the Prophet kept telling him, I can't read, I can't read, right? During the first time, did the Prophet believe in what Jibrail was telling him when he told him, read, and the Prophet said, I can't, was he believing in what Jibreel, Jibreel telling him or not? If you say the Prophet was telling Jibrail, hey you know I'm not believing in what you're telling me, this is nonsense, I can't take this, what kind of a Prophet is that who rejects the message of an angel and accuses the angel of you know fabricating, if he believed in the the angel and in the message that Jibrail was delivering to him, then why would Jibrail do that a second time, a third time and traumatize him, if the guy is believing in you, let him go, just give him the message, So something doesn't add up. Number three, what does it mean for the Prophet to say, I'm not a reciter? Did he give him a book to read from for for him to say that? No, there was no book involved. It was just verbal verses that Jibra'il communicated to the Prophet. So what does it mean for the Prophet to say, I'm not a reciter, I'm not a reader? Doesn't make sense. And on top of that, when Jibra'il told him read, he didn't tell him what to read, read what? the first time he says read and the Prophet says I'm not a reciter so he suffocated him, right? well he didn't tell him what to read, what is he supposed to read? the third time he told him Iqra bismi khalaq, then he started reading Iqra bismi khalaq. so what was he supposed to read? it doesn't make sense it's not like he was given a book, and Jibreel is like, "Okay, read this book." No, there was no book involved, so the whole story just doesn't make sense. So in know, like if we read between the lines, you know, they are accepting that the prophet already knew that he's a prophet. He knew that he's supposed to read <coughs> something, or maybe convey something to people. Because when they are saying, "Just read," and they are ex- expecting the prophet to know what he's supposed to read but their version of the story is very clear that he had no clue what was going on, we'll read some other versions, this is just Bukhari, just wait till you see some other uh, versions over here. Number four, how can a Prophet, how can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala send a Prophet who doesn't know what's going on and the genius has to discover it? What kind of a religion is this? The Prophet whom you've chosen over 100, almost 124,000 Prophets, the best of all Prophets, he's got no clue what's going on, his heart is shaking, he's been traumatized, but some guy called Waraka bin Nofa, he knows exactly what's going on and he has to reassure the Prophet that no, you are a Prophet, why would God do that? He's going to send someone who doesn't even know that, he he doesn't even know what to expect? But Waraqah knows what's going on, that's unjust Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you know these are not his own ways. Number five, if the Prophet with his own eyes he saw the angel yet he had doubts and Waraqah had to confirm to him that no don't have doubts, this is not a demon, this is not a devil, this is the angel from God, if the Prophet with his own eyes seeing the angel, yet he had initially some doubts, do you blame the people for doubting his message when they didn't even see the angel? Can we even blame the people for rejecting? When he himself is doubting in the beginning, why blame others for doubting his message? He's seeing the angel with his eyes, people at least didn't see the angel with their eyes, it just doesn't add up, it absolutely does not make sense. Let's look at the version that Tabari tells us. The version that Tabari tells us, when the angel came to him, he was so traumatized, he the Prophet said, I have gone mad, I'm going crazy and I am going to the cliff of a mountain and I'm going to kill myself. The Prophet, he himself said that, he tells Khadija, when he tells her about the situation, he tells Khadija, Khadija, I was going mad and I wanted to kill myself. The Prophet, according to these Sunni traditions, he tried to commit suicide because it was so heavy on him, he couldn't handle it, he was traumatized, so as, as he was about to kill himself, Jibra'i told him no, 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 You're a, don't worry I'm a, I'm a messenger from God and he comforted him, he had to do that several times to stop the Prophet from killing himself. I'm not going to judge here, you be the judge, what do you think of these narrations? Which Muslims accept till this very day unfortunately. Many of them don't know about this, But those who have read these books, yeah, they do accept them. Especially the version of Bukhari. Bukhari is just like Quran for them, right? Anything in Bukhari they'll accept. Now Bukhari doesn't mention he tried to kill himself. Other, you know, versions of the story mention that, but a lot of them do accept these versions. What kind of a prophet is that who's trying to commit suicide? Does that add up? this is unjust this is injustice brothers and sisters injustice in our books we blame non-muslims for attacking the prophet look how we describe him the most pivotal point in his lifetime he's receiving revelation his mission started the guy thinks he's gone mad and he wanted to commit suicide and khadijah had kept she had to Reassure him that no no God wouldn't do this to you, it's not a demon, it's not a shaitan, it has to be a messenger, and he's confused about that actually. He doesn't know what's going on. There's best selling books that have this version. Yes, there's many and, and, and some Western academics who've written about the life of the Prophet, they have used these versions unfortunately. us at all, but I'm just saying that I feel like it's, if we better know that what they're trying to do, what their mission is, I feel like it's, it's easier for us to argue it. And we tell people, and this is just a form of them trying to humanize him, but this, he wasn't, he, was, he wasn't really one of us or a human of normality, so you can't put him at the same, you know, at the same level as us. When you try and it but see even when we humanize someone, it should not be to the point where we desecrate the honor and dignity of that person and accuse him of like committing suicide, but even suicide that's unacceptable. Judaism, Judaism it's, suicide. it's a haram in every religion, so, how, how so we're accusing the Prophet of actually thinking of doing something haram, he was going to do it according to these versions, Jibreel had to stop him. And this, this, that she came up with, it's very uh, fluid in Christianity. They say all the prophets who committed uh, haram, who some of them they say slept with their own daughters and had children, it's because God... They want to humanize them, them. right. God wanted us to have examples. I mean I'm not saying it's okay, it's terrible wrong, it's completely wrong but I'm just saying like... So let's ask this question to an average Muslim, did God choose the Prophet or that randomly just happened? Of course he was chosen, the Quran says that, the Hadith says that, the Prophet, he himself. Did God decide on that day to choose him or even before he created Adam, the Prophet says, I was a prophet when Adam was clay, okay? So a man like that, how can he not know what's going on? It's impossible, I mean he knows he's been chosen by God, how can he not know? How can he not know? And why would the, and why would the angel of God do that to him? What is the what is God humanizing here? What is God trying to achieve? He's telling his angel squeeze this man and suffocate him. Why? Why? Why are you why are you doing that? You're punishing him for something. What did he do wrong? And for what would he need to send like make an example of him for if he already sent how many other prophets before him? Exactly. And what kind of example? What can we learn from that? Exactly. Yes. These are the arguments. Right? <laughs> So our response to that is, what is there to learn from that? You know the difficulties the prophets went through, are lessons for us, we can learn from. What is this for us to learn from? That if one day God chooses you, he's going to send an angel to suffocate you? Right? It just doesn't add up. Why would that even happen? If that's an angel, a heavenly being, that wouldn't make sense for how an angel would operate even. It's like, How, how are the angels if they're going to go around attacking people? Well, it uh, could, it now, yes. uh, could it be possible <coughs> that these stories were concocted by non-Muslims or Jews pretending to be Muslims? We're going to examine who probably forged these, fa- these hadiths and fabricated them. So one argument that we could give them is that when God himself created a voice and that voice spoke to Musa which was a direct creation of God, not an angel or mediation in between, Musa did not react in such a way but the Prophet who's even above Musa is reacting in such a way so right, No other Prophet of God in the history of Prophets, whether in our books or even the Bible, they were traumatized like this when God sent them a message, you know why is the Messenger of God having to go through this? Did Musa have to go through this? Did Isa has to go through this? Isa the second he was born he was speaking verses of God, So peacefully. But the Prophet at age 40, the little baby can say it peacefully, but the 40 year old Prophet he's got to tremble and shake and almost die. What kind of judgment is that? Just ridiculous. Yes, brother. To believe that the Prophet tried to kill himself would make the Prophet a hypocrite, because in Islam, suicide. Well, they say he was so traumatized you know he lost his mind, started having convolutions and he just didn't know what he was doing, in any case that version says that he went to Khadija, he told her about that then you know she sent after Waraqah ibn Nofel, and she informed him and some other names you find you know being mentioned, one of them one of those people that Khadija consulted was a man supposedly by the name of Adas, Adas gave her you know, uh, a solution, a way to figure out whether this is an angel or some demon you know, harassing the Prophet, he told Khadija, I've written something, I don't know, something like that, like that breaks a spell, right? Take this and put it on the back of the Prophet, and if there's a spell on him, this is going to break the spell. Then some versions tell us that he Khadija was told, here's another way to figure out if this is an angel or a demon. Put the head of Muhammad in your lap. When the angel comes to you comes to Muhammad, right? Because the angel would repeatedly come to the prophet. So if that happens, take the prophet's head like open your shirt, put the Prophet next to your chest and remove your hijab, expose your hair. If it's an angel, the angel will feel ashamed and leave, if it's a demon, the demon will stay and not respect that you've taken off your hijab, ridiculous, you know, version after ridiculous version. First of all, first of all, hijab was not wajib at that time, hijab became wajib in Medina, not in Mecca, in Mecca, while hijab was a virtue, it was not wajib. Secondly, you don't have to cover yourself from an angel, right? Every person has two angels. Every woman has two angels, you know. How come she's not covering her hair from those two angels? The angels, they don't have the same obligations we have. So what if Jibrail sees Khadija without hijab? So what? What happens? What's the heart? Do we have a verse or a hadith that says angels can't see Khadija, <laughs> you know? Um, with her hair exposed. So we have some of these very outrageous versions. Do they classify these hadiths as some Yes, some of them are Sahih hadiths, absolutely. And they defend them. See their speakers, right? And their religious leaders? They talk about these hadiths and they defend them. Yes, this is exactly what happened to the Prophet. They defend them till this very day. Yes, brother. They took it even a step further unfortunately. Now who are some of those people who have narrated these hadiths? One of them is Az-Zuhari. Az-Zuhari, he was known for his close relationship to Bani Umayyah, the Umayyads. He narrates this hadith from Urwa ibn Zubayr. Urwa ibn Zubayr, he was known for fabricating hadiths against Imam Ali. And he was known for being a hypocrite we have clear indications from Sunni sources that he was a hypocrite. How are we going to trust him? Then we have Aisha as the source of these traditions. Well, this is problematic for a number of reasons but the first most important reason is that according to the Sunni version that she was nine when the Prophet married her and so on and so forth, she was not even born when all of this happened, who's she narrating this from? because these hadiths in Bukhari and others, they list Aisha as the source, she doesn't say, I heard this from my husband the Prophet he told me or from my father Abu Bakr or whoever it was, she just says this happened to the Prophet, okay what's her source? She wasn't alive here according to their, you know, uh, version and according to their claims, she was so young she was not even alive here, so who's she narrating this from, who's her source? The Prophet. She doesn't say it's the Prophet. Who is it then? Khadija. She never, you know, got any in- information from Khadija. She never even met her. So what's going on over here? So this tells us that these fabric, these uh, hadiths, were fabricated. These hadiths were actually uh, fabricated, and they were primarily fabricated by the Umayyads the Umayyads wanted to paint a very negative image of the Prophet, we have so many clues on that and so many correct historical accounts that tell us Muawiyah and Yazid and others, they would actually pay narrators to fabricate hadiths against the Prophet to show that he makes mistakes, that he was demonized, that he wanted to commit suicide, there was a spell on him, He made a lot of mistakes to justify their own mistakes so that when people object to them, hey you rulers, you're immoral, you're doing this, they would say well the messenger of God he made mistakes here and too, if shaytan you know misguided Yazid sometimes, well shaytan also misguided the Prophet sometimes and so on and so forth, so this was a way to justify their position. Number two, waraqa ibn nawfal we see all these stories were fabricated around Waraqa ibn Naufal because Waraqa ibn Naufal came from those tribes that were close to the Zubairis and these others and they wanted to give him such a huge role in the religion of Islam so that their descendants, many of those who narrated these hadiths were from the descendants of the tribe of Waraqa ibn Naufal to say that hey you know our grandfather Waraqa or the one who came from our you know tribe, he was the one who confirmed to the Prophet that he was a messenger, so they wanted to claim some credit for themselves and then you had some people from the people of the book who supposedly became Muslim but they were hypocrites, they fabricated many of these hadiths as well in order to de-sanctify the Prophet sallallahu alaihi because the Prophet had such high esteem, such an honorable figure, some did not want that in the Muslim community so they fabricated all these hadiths unfortunately. Now who were the first to believe in the Prophet? That's an area of debate between the schools of thought, right? We know that the first woman who believed in him was Khadija, there's no dispute, both Shia and Sunni accept that the first woman to believe in the message of the Prophet and to become Muslim was Khadija alayhis However, from the males, who was the first person? We have mutawatir hadiths, tens if not hundreds of hadiths that confirm that the first person to believe in the Prophet was Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, it is a mutawatir hadith such a successive narration that is beyond any doubt. We have hadith, sahih hadith from the Prophet himself, he confirms that the first, first person who believed in him was who? Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, al Hakim al-Naisaburi, a very prominent Sunni scholar, he has a book called Al-Mustadrak, he lists hadith which are Sahih according to Ahl-Sunnah, but they were not mentioned in Bukhari and he admits that this is a hadith that is Sahih from the Prophet. What does the hadith say? The first amongst you to meet me on the pool of Kawthar on the Day of Judgment is the first person who became Muslim Ali ibn Abi Talib that's a hadith that is Sahih according to this Sunni scholar, he says the chain is Sahih, the Prophet is clearly saying that the first person to meet me on the Day of Judgment is the first person who believed in me and that is Ali ibn Abi Talib, we have many many hadiths you know It's an exhaustive list if I were to mention you to mention to you all those hadiths that speak about Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib alayhi salam being the first to believe in the Prophet, we have At-Tabarani Sunni scholar, Bayhaqi Sunni scholar, they have narrated this hadith that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi took the hand of Imam Ali, he grabbed him by the hand and he said, this is the first person who believed in me. يصافحني يصافحني and this is the first person who will meet me and shake hands with me and greet me on the day of judgment. Wahhada sadiqul Akbar. And this is the great Siddiq, the title of Siddiq, the one who excessively believes in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we have many, many narrations that tell us. Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib السلام, was the first person to believe in the Messenger of God and by the way, one proof that he was the first to believe is that even his own enemies during his lifetime, those at Sufeen, the people of Muawiyah, right? They never denied him this virtue. They all realized that he was the first person. It was such a well-known fact, even his enemies did not dispute it. Who started disputing it after Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib After that era, you see these fabricated hadiths and then those who had a disease in their hearts, they started rejecting it. Ibn Kathir, Ibn Kathir is a very well-known Sunni scholar. He says there are many, many narrations and hadiths that state Imam Ali was the first to believe in the Prophet but none of them are correct. These are the words of Ibn Kathir. Why aren't they correct? Mutawatir. You Ahlul Sunnah, you say if you have ten hadiths, it becomes mutawatir. Meaning it's beyond doubt and you have to accept it. And we've got tens and hundreds of hadith. He says, yeah, there are a lot of hadiths about Imam Ali being the first to believe in the Prophet, but none of them are correct. Subhanallah. I don't know what happens to some of these scholars. Yes, brother. But there are some that still very like the founder of like the Daesh ibn
1: Taymiyyah who say that because the imam was not technically of the age of... Like
0: we'll talk about that, 14, you know, stuff. we'll examine that, yes that's one of their objections. So the first person, the first person to believe in the Prophet was Imam Ali a.s. then Lady Khadija peace be upon her, she was the second person to believe in the message of the Holy Prophet the brother just mentioned one of their objections, they've said well the Islam of Imam Ali doesn't really count because he was only a boy, he was not mature, he hadn't achieved puberty, he was only 10 and it doesn't really count, so the first person other than Khadija to have believed in him was Abu Bakr, his Islam counts, you know just this objection is an insult to God and the Prophet, both of them, why? Number one, when the Prophet invited Imam Ali to believe in him, was it by his own judgment or God told him that? God would tell the Prophet, especially during those first three years, the first three years of the da'wah were private, selective, Allah would tell the Prophet to preach Islam to who? it was not an open invitation to everyone to become Muslim, we'll examine that later inshallah. So when the Prophet told Imam Ali come and join me, was it by instruction of God or he came up with his own instruction? If it's by the instruction of God, Allah chose this 10 year old boy to be the first person, what's your problem? If he's a boy and Islam doesn't count, then you're insulting God by saying God did something you know that was in vain, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, God forbid, he did something in vain, would God do something in vain? If Imam Ali's Islam wouldn't count, why would God instruct the Prophet to invite Imam Ali? If you say the Prophet, he told Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib to become Muslim, well, why would the Prophet choose this young boy to be the first? What did he see in him? This tells you that this was actually a special boy, a boy chosen chosen by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we don't see the Prophet running after other boys and telling them, hey come become Muslim, so what's the matter with you? What is this objection that you have against Imam Ali a.s. What does it mean that he was a boy and his Islam doesn't count? If his Islam doesn't count, why is the Prophet so concerned about his Islam? Why does the Prophet in Sahih Hadiths, he says the first one to believe in me was Imam Ali, the Prophet's making a big deal out of his Islam, He's emphasizing it, he's referencing it, he's mentioning it. So it means it's an important thing. So really that's just an insult to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to you know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet. Now the first woman was Khadija alayhi salam. So the first three Muslims that you had in Islam were the Prophet. Imam Ali. Lady Khadija peace be upon her, Imam Ali in one sermon he says when he's describing the early days of the prophetic mission, he says there was then no Muslim family except the family consisting of Muhammad, his wife Khadija and I was the third, this was the first Muslim family in the religion of Islam, the Prophet of God, his wife and Imam Ali Ibn Athir and also Ibn Hajar, Sunni scholars, they mention a hadith that a merchant by the name of Afif he came to Masjid al-Haram to the grand mosque in Mecca and he was surprised by a scene, all these idols, okay worshipping their idols, that was normal he saw one man, one boy and one woman praying together, jama'ah, he was surprised, what's the scene, who are these people, what are they praying to? so he asked Al-Abbas, Al-Abbas is the uncle of the Prophet, Al-Abbas at this time he was not Muslim, he was a pagan, he told him what's going on, who's praying, who are these three? He tells him that is my nephew Muhammad, Ali is my other nephew and the, the, the woman is Khadija they are worshipping God, he's on a mission, he claims to be a prophet, remember at this time Abbas does not believe in the message of the prophet, he claims to be a prophet and he says this according to Sunni versions, and there is no other than them three on the face of the planet who are Muslim and they follow this religion, so here we have a witness who is saying that on that day in which these three were praying, there were no other Muslims on the face of the earth, that tells you they were the only first three Muslims, yes brother? So what about the father of the Imam, he never, the Prophet never tells his uncle? He never... Later we'll examine Abu Talib, what was his belief, Abu Talib, he publicly did not show that he was a Muslim, for reasons we will examine later inshallah. so Let's stop here. Next time let's examine what about the claims that Abu Bakr was the first ter- person to believe in the Prophet? Is that authentic or not? And in reality, when did he become Muslim? And how many people before him became Muslim? We'll examine that next time inshaAllah.